here we are now with episode number 12 in our series you are what are you i forgot i had to eat my words a little bit or i'm eating my words a little bit for what we were talking about at the end of last episode last episode we were talking about legilimency going into someone's mind and we didn't cover occlumency which is closing your mind and i started to say well harry's in a different position than us and that's why he needs close-mindedness and i sort of stopped myself and i had a bit of a oh hang on a second something's not right here so we're clearing this up actually because i realized harry is like us We are like Harry, because Harry is the chosen one. And we are the chosen one. We are the the chosen ones. The chosen one. So let's look at occlumency, which in the world of Harry Potter, in this narrative, means that Harry... Is closing his mind to the Dark Lord, which has the ability to read his mind, even at a distance. So it's very important that he learns this skill. Now for us, we've been talking about overlaying perspectives and differences in worldview overlapping. And we also talked about the student and the teacher dynamic. And we really only skim the surface. We really only just touched on that. That's a vast subject. It is a huge subject. And it's something that is, it's always going to be something that every teacher has to deal with. And also every student has to deal with. So at least a proportion of every lesson or every learning or every course needs to be dedicated to learning theory, which is the same as teaching theory. They're two sides of the same coin. And for us, well, let's look at this character. He's trying to close his mind, and he's basically in the thick of everything going wrong in his life. He's really alone. And basically, we can look at this metaphorically because we can say, why does he want to close his mind? Well, because there's this big, evil, dark wizard out there where he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what power he has. He knows he's coming to kill him. He knows he's go- he means him harm. And yet, there's no one else in Harry's life that he can talk to about this. There's no one that will understand his alarm. There's no one that will understand his pain, his fear, his worry. And this is the situation of a lot of adolescent kids. And it might not be the case that they have something that they call an evil dark wizard. But it could be something else. It could be the pressure of schoolwork. It could be the pressure of a looming adulthood. It could be the pressure of the collapse of a meaning. 
and could be the pressure of losing your religion, finding out that your parents don't know everything, losing trust in your parents and your family and your culture and your upbringing. It could be a breakup with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It could be relationship issues. These are very big things for teenagers and on into adulthood. And these things can become these big dark clouds in the back of the mind. And the trick there, or the initial intuition there, is to say, well, if I could just not think about it, if I could just shut it out, if I could close my mind and put it out of my sense of how I am each day, then it wouldn't be a problem. If I could just ignore this problem, it would go away. And therein lies the problem, because the problem is in the mind. Just like Harry has Voldemort in his mind, and there is a part of Voldemort in him. He's at war with himself. He's trying to close himself from himself, with himself. It's this tangle, it's this big tangle inside. Now, there is a condition, a clinical condition which is called cognitive dissonance. And this is the therapeutic term of what we're talking about here. And cognitive dissonance essentially means you have two parts in your mind that don't fit together. And yet, both of those parts are very real. They're very dominant. And this can open up in many different ways. This can have many different manifestations. The mind is broad. The noosphere is vast. So it's easy to understand this as a metaphor. I don't think that's much of a a leap for Harry's situation to be taken metaphorically of how we are in our lives. So how to close your mind to other people trying to read it is one thing. That's sort of like the ABC plot that we're talking about here. But then the metaphorical version of the plot is how do you close your own mind to the things that are evil and bad? And the trick is, well... Actually, you can't close your mind to them. The trick is to confront them. The trick is to really make it clear what they are. And half Harry's problem is the unknown nature of it. He doesn't know where Voldemort is. He doesn't know how powerful he is. He doesn't know what he's planning. It could be at any moment So there's an ever-pervasive sense of what could happen next. And really, this is the the thrill of the journey. This is the heroes. This is why it's such an exciting story. It's because we're starting to get this very deep sense of what could happen next. Someone could be attacked. Someone could come for him. So really, the, the question or the answer to the question, how to close your mind, is, well, don't. 
And don't close your mind to other people. Don't even close your mind to people who's trying to read your mind. You can take that as a... You can take that in positive light, that they want to understand you. And of course, every situation is different. Every relationship is different. It might be that they're trying to manipulate you. That does happen. So don't rule that out. And to close your mind to yourself, well, you need to do some inquiry there. So this, this word inquiry or contemplation, that's another word, is something that you can use. You can really think your own way out of. You can think your own way out of these cognitive dissonances. Now, one of the ways out of cognitive dissonance is to be sitting with someone and talking to them and really working it out together. That's counselling. And that means you go in, you sit down, and you say, well, I've got this big, huge problem on one side and this big, huge problem on the other, and they don't go together. And, well, really, if you could explain it that simply, you could untangle it. Half the problem is that you can't explain the problems. It might be that you've never heard of this condition, cognitive dissonance. And see if it fits. See if it fits. Just say, is there this big looming dark cloud somewhere which is hard to understand, which could strike at any moment? And just say, well, that's one thing. And then say, well, what is that one thing jarring against? It might not even be jarring against something. It might be jarring against you and you just need some relief. Sometimes it's not as complex as two things in the mind fighting each other. It's just you against your mind. And it's your whole mind. It's the whole thing. It's the constant thing. It's every thought you have that's causing you problems. And even in that case, well, you can sit down and you can talk it out. If you're in a trusting environment and you have a connection with your therapist, your counsellor, it is possible to make way. And some therapeutic techniques are more effective than others. Some therapists have more awareness than others. So there is a degree there. There's still a scale of what's good and what's not. And it might be that it doesn't work. That is also still an option. It, may, it might actually be that therapy doesn't work for you. And in that case, well, you can still turn to contemplation, which is where you sit down and you actually watch the dream or you watch the thoughts and you try and reconfigure them into different words, into different shapes, into different thoughts. This is the path of meditation I'm talking about. This means sitting on a cushion without your phone, without your distractions, eyes closed. And then you ask yourself, what is my problem? What is my fear? And this is totally different to occlumency, which is normally saying, how do I avoid this problem? How do I close myself to this problem? 
And in a funny turn of events, in a funny sort of way, you actually achieve what occlumency wants by confronting your problems, by really talking about and thinking through your problems. And the inquiry nature that I mentioned is, well, that's just the question nature of it. What is my problem? What is the problem? Anything that's, an in, that's a question is an inquiry. And inquiry is just a broad term for asking lots of questions. What occlumency wants, or what you want from occlumency, is for the issue to be dissolved. It's almost like, think of it this way. Think, think of it this way. If someone's trying to read your mind and you're totally okay with your mind, then you can be transparent. If you're totally pure with your thoughts, and I know that has a lot of, it sounds like it has a lot of loaded connotations when I say pure thoughts. So don't, don't read too much into this term, pure thoughts, at this stage, because that's a, that's a funny tangle we can easily get into. But say someone's trying to read your mind and you have pure thoughts or you are clear-minded, then it doesn't matter if they read your thoughts. If your intentions are clear, if your mind is clear, if you're integrated with the different parts within you, then it's no problem for someone to read your thoughts. And that's really what you want to get towards. That's what you want to get at. And when you're clear in your thoughts and someone tries to read your mind for or manipulate you for the wrong reasons, then you can actually see things more clearly and you can put a stop to it. And you can actually say, no, that's not what you do with this information. So that's a little bit of a spiel on occlumency. So the plot at Hogwarts school is that the, well, one of the main plot lines is this McGonagall character has taken over and started doing all these conservative things and having more rules and more regulations and more red tape. And this funny thing happens with the Weasley twins, which are some of Harry's friends, and they're sort of like the comedians. And they have this resolve come up where they say they don't, they don't care if they get kicked out of school. It sort of loses its meaning because of how, how much red tape has gone up. And so for them, the whole threat of, oh, you might get kicked out or you might get detention, it, it, it collapses on itself. So the bureaucracy loses its potency because it tries too hard to outdo itself. And you can see the same in, well, you can see the same in the prison system. Prisoners do get to this point in certain countries, in certain 
stages of their life, in certain conditions. Because they realize, well, my life is over, my life is gone, so there's nothing I can, there's no, there's no need to say, there's no, there's no prospect. The prospect of being free from prison is no longer something that can be used to incentivize them. And they can become very violent. They can become very dangerous. And they become dangerous and you say, well, that person needs to be locked up. And well, maybe not. And the prison system, well, that, that's a complicated one. That's also another big tangle. Just like the idea of pure thoughts. Well, the idea that the tangle of pure thoughts is a is a question of subject the subjective realm and the question of the prison system. Well, that's the realm of society, theory of society. But well, this is this is what this novel is about. This novel is the order of the phoenix. How do we organize ourselves on a societal level? On a civilization level. So that's why this is in here. This is why the Weasley twins are expressing this same thing that prisoners feel, which is if you put so many rules on me where I can't do anything, there's going to come a point where I just say, look, I don't care about any of these rules or any of the punishments because it's not worth it. I'm just going to leave it all behind. And the Weasleys have this great thing where they make all these fireworks in the middle of the exam and they cause this re- big havoc and there's this big, oh, everything's happening and all the children start cheering and laughing at them and they fly away on their brooms. And the McGonagall, uh, the Umbridge, sorry, not McGonagall, the Umbridge character comes out and saying, stop this, stop this. And well, she's powerless because they've, they're sick of it. And one of the teachers says, there's this sort of moment where one of the teachers is standing and watching this. It might have been actually McGonagall, but I don't remember which. But she says, oh, I could have put a stop to the Weasley twins, but I didn't know if I had permission. That's another example. That's another moment that illustrates how far the bureaucracy is gone. Because even the teachers can't enforce the laws because there's so many of them and they wanted to make sure, oh, do I have permission? It's like if I have to ask your permission for everything, then I can't do anything. If I have to wait for your approval, well, this is a big one. Now we're getting into the workforce. Imagine this in the workforce place. It's, it's sort of like that thing of, of you ask someone to do something and they say, yeah, sure, do it. And then you ask someone to do something again and then they say, yeah, sure, do it. And then this keeps going on for some time. And then you turn to them and say, oh, why didn't you do this? And you say, oh, you didn't ask. And that's their way of getting back at you. That's their way of manifesting their resentment which is why do you always have to ask just because you can ask just because you have that power over someone
So that's a few of the dynamics going on here. And the climax, or the, how should we say, the real point of, or, or the real action that moves the plot forward in this novel is the fight for the prophecy. So it turns out there's been a prophecy which has been said about Voldemort and Harry. And unlike prophecies in the muggle world, this prophecy is actually kept on file in the Ministry of Magic. And it's a crystal ball kind of object. And it turns out, well, this is what Voldemort has been trying to break in to get. And just like the Philosopher's Stone, Harry figures this out, or his friends figure this out, and they go after it to get it before he does. So there's a parallel plot structure there between the first novel and this novel. And the prophecy, well, that had actually been said by the divination teacher. This is a piece of information that's quite subtle, but it was the divination teacher that said the prophecy. And there's been some speculation as to whether this divination teacher really knows what she's talking about, if she really is trustworthy in her predictions. And yet somehow there's some a lot of emphasis and a lot of inf- interest from all the characters trying to get this prophecy. And there's a very big battle between Harry and his friends and all the Death Eaters. There's a lot of action between the two sides and then the peop- the, the Order of the Phoenix turn up. And it keeps escalating higher and higher. And then Voldemort himself turns up. And then Dumbledore turns up. And there is a massive showdown. And it is just all action. It's just action, action, action. And it really is dramatic because in the previous novel we had Voldemort versus Harry. And that wasn't really a fair fight because Harry wasn't ready for it. Whereas in this novel, we have two sides which were which are pretty much equally matched. Like there's always this, this thing going around that, oh, the only one more powerful than Voldemort is Dumbledore. That's sort of this throwaway comment that keeps coming up. So there's this huge drama between two forces. Just like cognitive di- the cognitive dissonance within Harry, well, then we also see the dissonance between the characters. And there's some tragedy there as well, because Harry has his godfather die. And some of the evil, the, the evil, what's her name, Bellatrix? I've forgotten her name. Helena Bonin Carter. 
I know her from all those Johnny Depp films in Fight Club. Actually, she's been in heaps of great films. Fight Club's a great film. I remember that. So the question, though, the the deeper thing we want to abstract from this is what is a prophecy? And prophecies do exist. They've existed as 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 old as the ages. They're as old as human history, even older. And essentially what a prophecy is, is it's a statement about reality which is preemptive and yet somehow entirely true. And we can say there's two ways of talking about ourselves. Essentially, we can say I'm going to do something and then I'm going to call that something. So I'm labeling after the fact. Or we can say that I'm going to say a whole bunch of things and try and get my actions to match that. And the prophecy, well, it doesn't really fit between those two. Well, well, let me try and let me try and tease those a little bit more. We've got you, you can be walking around in in your life with these words in your head or these ideas saying, "Oh, I'm going to do this," or "I'm going to be this," or "I want this." And they're sort of like these micro prophecies. They're sort of lesser, with lesser potency to them. They're predictions of the future. Oh, I need to get this. I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to work on this. And then the other side of it is, well, let's just label things how they are. Let's just talk about how things are at the time. And let's work on getting a clear picture between how things are and the thoughts in our head. So we're not racing off with some idea. We're not chasing an idea. We're not chasing the thought. We're actually more concerned with the connection between words and reality. And now a prophecy, well, a prophecy is way outside of this spectrum because a prophecy seems like it's something far, far off in the future and yet it's also very, very true. So it's like both of these principles combined on an extreme. And you can notice when certain people speak like a pro- like a prophet speaks in prophecies. And they're sitting around saying things that will happen and somehow you know they are true and sometimes they're very broad. And I remember this one time I had this I had this boss one time in one of my jobs long time ago. And he sort of had a bit of a prophecy kind of vibe about him. Sort of prophecy like a like he was a prophet. And I was asking him about someone and and what was it? He said something like Yes, he will go much further than I have. Or he will achieve more success than I have. 
and this was quite a successful man saying this about one of his employees. And something resonated in me when I heard him say that. I think it was the the feeling of the prophecy, like the, the resonance of certain words about the future is an important component of prophecy. He will have a lot more success than me. And you can do this for yourself. You can... You can say, let me think this through and let me say, how do I come up with a statement about my future, which I know will be true? And you might start with something quite weak. You might start with something quite simple. And it might be that you keep it very broad. I will realize my full potential. How's that for a prophecy? I will realize my full potential. And running around with that sort of idea in your head is very different to just some little ideas. And when you state it as a fact, you state it as truth. A prophecy is not speculation. A prophecy is not, oh, maybe it will happen or maybe it won't. A prophecy is a declaration. It's got some weight behind it. And the person who makes a prophecy about you depends on well that depends on your relationship with them like you're not going to have someone younger than you make a prophecy about you it really only works with the old old wise man complex someone older than you so what do your what do your elders what do the adults say about you in your life do they believe in you And, well, that might be an indication, not of them, or not of you, but of them, and that you, you do need more support. And really, there should be prophecies made, positive prophecies made about all young people. And you look at Harry's life, well, there's a lot of people that don't believe in him at this stage of the story. There is no one making prophecies. There's no one saying... Harry, you are going to be so good. You are going to be the one to take care of us. You're going to be the hero of the story, Harry. No one's telling him, oh, you're going to save the day, Harry. Harry, we trust you. Harry, we believe in you. Harry, you're a wonderful wizard. Harry, you are going to go far. None of this is present at the moment in this story. And yet somehow, the prophecy, well, the whole book, hinges on this thing of the prophecy, which is about Harry. And we find out that the actual prophecy does mean, Harry, you're going to save the day. Harry, you are the hero of the story. You are going to have to be. Because the prophecy is that none, what is it? None, uh, None can survive while the other lives. 
something like that. I've forgotten what the actual quote is, but basically it means that Voldemort and Harry are in this thing where one of them is going to have to kill the other. And there's another component to this, and this is very clever that this has been has been written into the story, because after this showdown, and the prophecy actually breaks, but the Order of the Phoenix hear enough of it, and as it turns out, well, Dumbledore knew what the prophecy was without having the crystal ball, and this this showdown is sort of petered out, and Harry's having a moment to talk to Dumbledore. And Harry's saying, well, what does this mean? Does it mean that I'm going to have to kill Voldemort? And Dumbledore sort of says, well, he says two things, and this is very important to understand. He says, on the one hand, yes, the prophecy is true. And the prophecy means what you think it means. But then he adds something which is critical, which is in the book, and it's a very important detail which is that he says that the prophecy didn't have to exist. And it's because of Voldemort's nature that an opposite has been created. It's because of the evil in Voldemort that an opponent, in contradiction to him, has been born. And that's a very important nuance to understand, which is that prophecies don't have to be made. And that, well, this comes back to duality, because for every, the duality is that for every opposite, there's another, for every thing, there's an opposite. And so when you have a concentrated amount of evil and darkness, you also have a, an equal concentrated amount of light or, or goodness. And there's another detail in this plot, which is that the prophecy actually, I, I believe this is right, but it actually says it, it's more general than just Harry Potter. And there's actually two characters that it could have been because it says something about the night on which they were born would be this person, the golden child, the hero child. And as it turned out, well, Harry was born on that night, so Voldemort thought he was the one. And then there was one other who also had the same birthday, which was Neville Longbottom. So it could have been, well, actually, Neville is the chosen one. It could have been that the prophecy could be fulfilled by Neville, and as, it fact, as a matter of fact, it turns out that it is in a certain way. Neville does have an important role to play. And that reminds me again that not all prophecies have to be fulfilled. They don't always have to come true. And it might even be also that you can be your own prophecy coming true. There are things that have been said about, well, certain people. And then it's the it's like it's the opposite way around. Like we can say, this prophecy is about this person. 
and they can fulfill it or unfulfill it. Or we can say, there's a, prof- there's a prophecy here and, and anyone can really come and fulfill it. It's like, you're the Messiah if you fulfill the prophecy. So I say, well, okay, what, what do I have to do? <laughs> so that's some ideas on the prophecy. And, well... The prophecy for you is that you are to become the chosen one and you are to live the same story that Harry has lived, but in your own way. And, well, that's a prophecy. That's a prophecy that I make to you. And if you've listened this far through, you're starting to get a picture of what that means and how different it actually is correlating this children's book by J.K. Rowling with real life and how different it actually is. We're distilling principles here. We're distilling wisdom. So when I say to you, you are the chosen one, that should mean something very different. And you should be able to link that at this stage to this statement that there is a prophecy about you. And the prophecy is related to you. So that's Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And I know there's a lot we didn't cover, but that's all we have time for. Well, that's all I feel to say for now. And... Umbridge is a character that comes back. She actually graduates from Hogwarts and goes into the Ministry of Magic. And when we talk about that and what she does there, there will be more literary comparisons and more cultural statements that are being made, which are very interesting. And, of course, next episode, we will start with... Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. So let's just sit quietly before we go off and do any of that. We can just sit with our eyes closed just for a few minutes. And that's all I have to say for now.